Hello and welcome to Making Creativity Pay, a podcast where we speak to people in a range of creative industries about how they try and make a living from their work. This episode's guest is Matt Curtis, co-founder of Pellicle, an online magazine and podcast devoted to exploring beer, wine, cider, food and travel, and also author of the book Modern British Beer. Hi Matt, um, thanks very much for agreeing to do this. It's great to have you on. You're a, a writer, a podcaster, run a website, you know, 101 other things, so kind of generally speak, is all focused around beer, writing about beer, talking about beer. I was kind of thinking, you know, apart from being a Premier League footballer or a musician, you know, getting paid to talk and write about beer sounds like the kind of the perfect job. So how did you kind of get into that in the first place? Thanks so much for having me on the podcast, Dan. And do you know what? The only difference between me and a Premier League footballer is uh, they earn a significantly a greater amount of money. It's not a lucrative job, but it is a job I love. So I um, fell into beer writing as a hobby initially. Um, my I've always been into beer, but the catalyst was when my dad got a job in the United States in 2010. Um, and I went out to visit him when he first moved to this town called Fort Collins. And the beer scene and the beer culture there in Fort Collins, it really is a a beer town is the best way to describe it, um, really changed my outlook on beer and turned my enjoyment of it into enthusiasm or bordering and an obsession, really. So I started a beer blog, um, is the short answer. And that was something that I put a lot of time and effort into. And within a couple of years, I was able to get paid commissions, which was, wasn't the intention uh, initially. I I just enjoyed writing about beer, but I loved it. And so when I realized I could earn money from it and eventually turn it into my career, I decided that's what I wanted to do. So in 2016, I uh, left my well-paid job in music tech instrument distribution and became a full-time writer and photographer. And I, so I've been doing that since February 2016. So uh, six years almost. Wow, that's that's pretty cool. So within beer, there's kind of probably, you know, it's very much a stereotype, but there's kind of two kinds of beer groups. So, you know, there's the kind of fusty camera types where it's, you know, devil's toenails or some kind of beer. And then there's the <laughs> kind of the the cool punk kind of, um, you know, particularly around, you know, kind of brew dog as the more public side, you know, the more kind of commonly known, th- that kind of stuff. So there's those kind of two sorts of groups within, you know, beer and brewing um if, does that kind of do a disservice to the area or do you think there's kind of an element of, of that in of truth in that i actually think it's you know after, i've been covering it for 10 years and it's way more complex than than just those two groups and actually those two groups have way more in common than first meets the eye i think the the camera stereotype is is woefully misplaced i've I'm a camera member. I used to be very anti-camera, but now I'm a paid-up member. And, um, you know, they published my latest book, Modern British Beer, and they've been incredibly supportive in that. And that book is n- not just about cask ale. It's about hazy, juicy, modern beer and all sorts of wonderful styles of beer as well. Um, but I think beer is quite tribal because it comes in so many different styles and flavors and pubs have different atmosphere and and vibes and everyone can make their own experience so you do have these kind of tribes but my overriding feeling is there's way more in common if you think about camera as an organization 
when it was founded in 1971, they were the punks. They were the ones who were anti-establishment, who saw these massive breweries eroding this part of British beer culture that they loved, and they fought to defend it successfully. And, you know, every, every movement involves people getting older and, and things change, but you know, camera, what they did in the seventies is very similar to what brands like say Brewdog or Beavertown did, uh, 10, 15 years ago. So, you know, there's, I think that commonality is something that needs to be celebrated, but also everyone appreciates beer through their own lens and in their own way. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you mentioned, you mentioned the book there. I mean, how, how did that kind of come about? So, you know, do you kind of have a sketch of it and you go to camera or is it much more developed before you speak to them? So I first wrote a pitch for that book in 2018 and I took it to some more mainstream uh, publishers. Camera weren't looking for new authors at that time. Um, and, and I was still, at, that was just when I wasn't quite on board with what, what they were doing. Um, but they actually, but something, I got given some really good advice, uh, a few years ago by Pete Brown, who's a multi award winning, uh, beer writer and he's amazing at what he does. And he said, you know, have you got a good idea? It's what, it's not worth rushing and taking the wrong opportunity. It's worth waiting for the right publisher and, um, working with the right people on it. And I took that to heart and thought, yeah, I'm, I'm not in a rush to write a book. I've got the idea that I want to do and I'll write it when I'm ready. And um, right at the start of 2020, I was approached by a chap called Alan Murphy, who had been brought on by camera as a commissioning editor to bring in, his job was to bring in new voices. So um, he approached me and said, would you be interested in pitching us? Have you got an idea? And I said, actually, yeah, I've been sitting on this idea for two years and they, they loved it. And what was great about waiting to work with them is they gave me a massive amount of editorial freedom. So, you know, it's really, when you read that book, it's my idea. It's not influenced, uh, by, by camera at all. They've kind of just, uh, let me roll with it and gave me that, that faith because you know, Alan was a fantastic editor, uh, in that regard. Um, but yeah, it was, you know, I was asked if I wanted to pitch, but this was on the back of, you know, like I say, 10 years of blogs and then eventually professional writing. Um, so it was that body of work that opened that door uh, to the opportunity to have my first book published. Absolutely. And I mean, kind of one, one of the themes around the podcast is kind of making creativity pay. So, you know, obviously be as detailed as, as you want. Um, is it a case of, you know, they will give you a retainer to kind of produce it and then it's commission or is it all commission? And you know, how much of a negotiation is that? So I've done two books and, um, the first one is a little pub guide that I did for a publisher called Hoxton mini press, a little independent publisher. Um, and that book was a tender. So they reached out to several potential authors, um, with the, like it's a flat fee, there's no commission and this is the work involved and you pitched for it. And I thought, and I hadn't modern British beer with, this was just before that actually. Um, but. I saw the tender and thought, I really want to do this book because it was like a, a guide to 50 pubs I love. And I felt like I could do that in my sleep and I really wanted it. Uh, so I, I pitched for that and then I went in to see them and I, I won that tender. Uh, the only thing with that is, um, 
you know, it's a flat fee. There's no commission. So the book's done really well, but I've been paid. And that's quite like most, uh, beer writing, you know, you, you send a, an idea into an editor, a pitch, and they will say yes or no. And if they say yes, it'll say it'll be this much per word, or it'll be this much money. And then you do the work and you turn it in and you invoice for it. Sure. Um, modern British beer is a little different. Uh, so I was paid, uh, an advance, um, for the writing, uh, part of it. Uh, the photography was uh, a flat fee, but um, on the writing part, I am on uh, a, a good commission. That's one thing that was really appealing um, about the deal. Uh, and I think it's really important to be open with this because book advances these days are not not like they were 20, 30 years ago, where it's kind of like a life-changing sum of money. It's it's really not. But uh, But for every book sold, I do get a small commission. So if the book does well and it is doing all right, um, I should get a decent commission. I, f- I actually find out in the next uh, couple of weeks what that might look like because I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, but yeah, but yeah, with, with a book like that, um, it is a, it is a commission basis. So if it obviously becomes a a, uh, a New York Times bestseller, it it won't. But if it did, you know that that's the kind of money that could uh, set you up for life, really. So. Um- I mean, kind of one of the things that was interesting, I had a look on the camera website for the book and it's about £16.250 postage there, whereas obviously the the, the great behemoth Amazon, it's, uh, I think it was under £12. So, you know, it's like about £6 different for the same book and you'll get it delivered quickly or quicker. I mean, does that impact on what you get paid? I'm paid, my commission is on um, camera selling the book and, he, and camera will still fulfil the orders going to to Amazon. So it, it's interesting. I, in my previous job, uh, as let's say the best way to describe my role was as a sales analyst. I did some actual sales, but mostly I lived inside this giant pivot table and worked out margins and, and helped the field sales team work out what they could sell their product for. And in turn, what the RRPs of our products were to the, the customers we sold them into. Um, but one, for a couple of years, I managed our Amazon account and it, you know, it involved me going and actually having meetings at their former offices in Slough. They've got these lovely uh, offices in, in the city of London now, but I used to go out to Slough and uh, say, "What? please stop selling everything so cheaply. Um, but th- that gave me a lot of insight into how it worked. So when you buy on Amazon, as you know, it's, you're not just seeing Amazon's price, it's the marketplace. So every retailer that chooses to sell through them, which is most booksellers are also listing their price and Amazon don't deliberately target that lower price. They just match someone who discounts it. And I've, I've been tracking the book since it was launched. And I know that the first, uh, retailer to discount it was Blackwell's, uh, and they did so quite heavily, uh, pretty much off the bat. And so Amazon dropped down to match their price and then it kind of trickles down. So to me, I, I. I will always say that I want people to buy it from a small publisher because I think it benefits more people. If you buy it direct from the publisher or if you buy it from one of the indie shops, lots of uh, brewery tap rooms and, and bottle shops stock it as well, you're, you're supporting more people and you might pay a couple, of, couple more quid uh, for it. I think the, book, the book's easily worth its RRP for what you get from it. I would say that. But, um, you know, that's, I've not been so desperate to get those Amazon sales and get all those reviews, even though that 
you know, might drive a higher volume. I, it, it's, it, I think it's in my interest to support uh, the smaller businesses who who actively stock this book because um, it's. I I think it's great to see it in those in those places. But you know, it's one of those things like. The publisher will always sell at RRP. If I'm out on a book tour, I'm sell I sell it for fifteen pounds a copy um, when I'm there. But you know, if you do want it delivered the next day for eleven quid on Amazon, it's it's also there for you. Uh, you know, that's the thing, freedom of choice. Uh, but I would encourage people to to spend a couple more quid and buy it from an independent retailer or direct from the publisher. It doesn't really matter to me either way. I do still get my commission. And I mean, it's kind of a bit of a tenuous link, but, you know, kind of thinking about how Amazon and the big guys work versus the local or smaller independent. I mean, you, do you see a similar kind of thing within beer? Because I know on one of your episodes recently, you were talking about the kind of bigger takeovers of, of smaller of smaller brewers. Yeah, very much so. I mean, the beer market is a part of capitalism as much as any industry, really. And Craft beer was born in a way out of idealism and like, let's make something delicious. Let's make something with flavor. Let's get people excited about beer. But beer also works on very thin margins. It's made using very expensive ingredients that are getting more expensive. Um, it costs a lot to produce. And, you know, now there's a lot out there. I think when I um, started writing about beer, there were less than a thousand breweries in the UK. And now in 2022, there were there are over 2,000. You know, it, it it's just a boom. And not only have there been lots of breweries who have emerged in the UK in that time, but a lot of um, these new craft breweries have expanded a lot. You, know, you look at uh, Brewdog, Beavertown, Camden Town, they're massive now. Uh, two of the three of those have, have sold on to uh, multinational brewing companies. Um, uh, but even smaller breweries like Verdant and, and Dea, North Bruco have undergone large expansions and are making a lot of beer. And I think once you start competing on a larger scale, uh, there's only so much you can do in terms of price, in terms of quality and flavor before your beer tastes similar to someone else's. So then it becomes about price and getting national retailers listings. It's all very uncomfortable for me because, you know, I, I, I don't like seeing beer sold on price. I do try to be careful what I say because I, I also think beer should be accessible and, and the price of beer can mean it's not accessible, especially craft beer, can mean it's not access accessible for everyone. Um, but uh, I, do, I do worry that um, certainly in, in the case of multinationals, they do have a, an extremely large competitive uh, advantage. And if you look at, say, um, I was talking about uh, Magic Rock and Four Pure on a recent podcast who are owned by Lion, which is an Australian firm that's part of Kirin, uh, the giant Japanese brewery. Um, they they own multiple brands and are positioned to sell them at, for, at a very low price, but their beers look and feel and taste just like uh, a small independent brewery's beers, more or less. And so to the consumer that doesn't really know these, doesn't connect these dots, isn't, you know, it's not their job to, they're, they're going to go for the one that's the best price as well, you know, if it's going to taste great. So it does worry me because I like to support independent breweries and I do look at it and go, that's going to be really challenging for them. Um, I will say though, I'm also an optimist and I think that the best beer uh, is in the UK is still being made by the smaller independents who are who have the ability to say, we are going to put the 
ingredients and flavor and quality first before we look at uh, margin. Although everyone has to, it is a very competitive market. Um, it's kind of your, it's, it's kind of the whole point of what you do, but it must be quite difficult in, in some ways to kind of talk and write about beer in that, you know, especially on how it looks, you know, a, a crap pint of beer and a great pint of beer will look the same. You know, it's, you know, in terms of, you know, if it's cookery, you can have a presentation and you, you can, you can kind of see the quality or the attention to detail that's gone in. But with beer, it's not as easy. So how, how do you kind of um, get that across to the reader or the listener about what makes it, A, better than B? I think I've been doing this for, for a while now, for 10 years, like I said. And I think in the early days when I tried to develop tasting notes and, and best convey that to the reader, it was challenging. And it's a skill uh, you learn with practice by just tr- throwing stuff at the page and seeing what what sticks. Um, and I think the best thing to do is is try and talk about the beer in terms of flavors uh, the reader will understand. I'm I'm quite lucky that I've got to travel and, you know, I've I've eaten a guava and I've eaten uh, a lychee. And, and so sometimes I'll drink a beer and go, oh, that tastes like lychee. And I might write that down. But I have to think that maybe not everyone, if you say certain tropical fruit, has everyone really had one? It's not something you can just go to the supermarket all the time and 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 pick up, right? Um, so I definitely think about it in in that sense. Um, I also also try and remember that um, I try and look at beer these days from an agricultural perspective. Like I try and remind people that beer is largely something that's grown in the ground in terms of barley and wheat and hops. Um, and but every element within beer brings flavor to it, whether it's the water. Uh, whether it's the grain or the hops, whether it's the yeast strain used. Um, and I think the way I try and talk about it now is not worry too much about intimidating people because this is very, this is what it is. You know, this it should be normal to know that beer is made from these four ingredients and this is what flavors they make. And I think that's something that is reflective of my writing is that I will try and explain something in, in terms of how it tastes and, and the experience it gives you in as an accessible as a way as I can, but I'm also not shy of just like being honest, like this is, this is what it's made from. And this is what these things taste like. Um, so it's finding that balance really, Uh, but what I think it's also what you're trying to do when you're writing about a good beer is convey deliciousness. And that's just the same as food writing. There's, there's, they actually have a lot in, in common beer is food. And, um, and so that's, you know, Something to remember about beer is we drink it because it brings us joy. It tastes great. It makes us feel relaxed. It's great to drink with friends. And so I think it's important, as important as to say, oh, this IPA tastes of guava and lychee. You can also say, this is absolutely delicious and it, this would be great down the pub with some friends. That It can be as simple as that, really. Yeah, I, I guess the kind of difficulty sometimes is, you know, as I mentioned to you previously, I used to work at the Wine Society on the data side rather than the actual wine side, but you know, you might have a five pound bottle of wine and a 40 pound bottle of wine. And, you know, it's quite a hard to convey, well, why is it worth 40 pounds or my own personal drinking preference tends to be dark beers and stouts. And again, you know, you can go from, you know, 90 P for a milk stout in Asda to, you know, 20 pounds plus for, for certain Imperial stouts. And, you know, you kind of think, well, you know, it, it tastes nice. It gets you drunk. What, you know, if you have to kind of sell a, 
15 pound bottle of stout or a 20 pound bottle of wine how you know that's obviously the skill you bring to it is to kind of get that kind of extra level of excitement or something different that's in there i think sometimes though you have to remember that for some people that 90p bottle of stout is everything they want and it's great you know and and you know i know one beer writer that loves drinking man's brown ale from asda and it's and that's that's what makes them happy and i i think that's what it comes down to if you know uh, Alesmith Speedway Stout is one that comes to mind that is quite an expensive beer. I think it's amazing. And if it's £20 for a bottle of it on the shelf, I'm going to go, do you know what? I think that's that's going to be worth it. Or a great example would be a bottle of the Colonel. Might be three, four, five pounds for a bottle of their stout. And that's going to make me happy, which is why we drink beer. But if that 90p bottle of stout brings you brings you joy, then that's the best beer to go for. I'm not going to tell anyone otherwise. So in, in terms of the kind of overall things of what you do. So you've kind of talked about the book. You've also then got the website, um, which is Pellicle. So in terms of the name and how it came about, what were the kind of drivers about that? Pellicle was, the idea was not mine originally. Um, it was my co-founder, a chap called Johnny Hamilton, who is also a full, full-time brewer. He's the head brewer at a brewery in Edinburgh called New Barns that set up a couple of years ago. Uh, and he was at Beavertown Brewery in London before that. Um, but he was really into a lot of high-end print wine mags. And when I say high-end, I mean, they were really beautiful design, amazing writing, not much of an online presence, but he wanted to do something like that and book for beer and say, there's not really a lot of stuff like this in the beer space. And there are some really good beer magazines Um uh, but I think there's room for for loads more. Like, I think um, I know the interest is there. And I think there's definitely, you know, in the UK, we've got things like Beer Room Collective, Ferment, um, got Good Beer Hunting over in the US that kind of has an international approach. But when we launched Pellicle in 2019, we saw an instant excitement and audience about it, which told me, yes, there's definitely a demand for this sort of thing. So... I mentioned Good Beer Hunting there. I worked for them for three and a half years um, and was an editor there for a little while. Um, and I left that position because I wanted to do more personal writing projects. And it was roughly this time, uh, a couple of months afterwards, where I met Johnny in a pub and he was going on about these wine mags. And I thought, that's a great idea. He sort of planted this seed. And I went home that night and did that thing where you register the URL. And, and I'm like, Johnny, I think we should do this. And I wrote a business plan. Um, and, um, I said, what I want to do is pay people to write and I want to, I want to get some funding. So I'm going to write a business plan and see if we can get an investor to, to, to give us some money. Um, uh, just as like an initial outlay. And then, and then we needed to be, we basically had six months to become self-sustaining, um, which we've achieved through Patreon. Um, but, uh, yeah, we, we did it. We, we launched the magazine, um, and this year was our second full year in operation, 2021. We actually paid out over £35,000 to to writers, illustrators, and photographers, which I think is one of the best feelings as a freelancer myself to be able to like support that economy, even in a small way as an independent publication, um, producing content that, that people seem to read and enjoy every week. Um, it's a pretty wild feeling. Uh, so we're just going to, the, the plan is to just keep, making pellicle uh for as long as we can 
and it did uh it grew into a podcast as well the podcast is my pet project um whereas the website there's four of us that work on that now and it's the input of all of us into what ends up on the site the podcast is still my own thing that i'm kind of taking in my own direction at the moment i even wrote the uh, the theme tune myself <laughs> it seems quite unusual in what you do in terms of you're very upfront around kind of what you pay writers you know like you said the, the amount you've paid out overall the kind of the patreon all that kind of things do you think it's you know you've kind of got nothing to hide and you kind of think that openness is a interesting to people and kind of just work, works well really i think you know one of the other thing about Pellicle, as well as getting to make a magazine about beer, it's it's the first limited company I've ever owned. So my own work, you know, putting Pellicle to one side, I'm a I'm a sole trader, like a freelance person, and I, you know, that's that's not really the same as having a limited company. But Pellicle is the first business I've owned where I'm responsible for other people, and I think what I see that as an opportunity to do is run a business the way you you want a business to be run and i think like the idea that like all these numbers and how things work should be secret is is i it doesn't sit well with me um the other thing we do is that we that you know the edit the editorial team we all get paid we, we don't pay ourselves very much it's it's a three so it's, it's a low three-figure sum each every month but um we we share that equally it doesn't matter who's done the most work that month we just have a pot and we just split it between us at the end of the month um because that's the way i want to run uh, a business and so the way pellicle works is it's not unique by any stretch of the word but it is kind of a sort of modern approach to media in that i think traditional advertising revenue is dead uh, people don't click on ads people hate pop-ups and ads and though we do have a sponsor hot burns and black uh, that's been with us since day one. Um, and we have a new podcast sponsor as well, Hand and Heart. They're people that kind of get that they're not going to get thousands of people clicking through. You just, you're more importantly, you're engaging with a, a platform that has a similar ethic to, to your own. So what we decided to do is have, is use Patreon as a reader funded model and really get out there. Look, this is what we're paying people. And if you give us money, then we will have money to pay more people to make better stuff. And now we're, our plan for 2022 is to increase the rate we pay people. And so we're currently on a funding drive. Uh, it is pe- uh, patreon.com forward slash mag if you would like to support us. Um, because we, we're going to put our rates up regardless. And if we don't get more support, then we will eventually, you know, fizzle out. Because uh, once we, we run on a cash basis and when the cash is gone, that's where we'll say, well, that was great, but we've uh, got no money left, so we've got to stop. Um, but our belief is if we're open and honest and transparent about every part of the business and we produce good content, then people will look at what we're doing and go, yeah, that's worth supporting. And I don't see a better way to do it than being as open and, and uh, honest, and uh, use that word transparent, I think that's the best way to describe it, about how we work. Because I also think a lot of people don't really know how traditional media works, and it's not as complicated as as people think. Um, and I think being honest with people um, is is the best way to encourage them to support the the publication. And so far, it's it's working for us, which is brilliant. And thank you to everyone that does support us. It's really hard to articulate uh, how much that means to us, but we we appreciate it massively. One one of the things I'm really interested in about kind of 
setting up this podcast is to kind of talk to different people who have different models. So whether that's ad supported, um, paywall, you know, this kind of thing within podcasts called value for value. And there's you know, kind of a lot around the kind of the crypto scene that that's quite interested in, in that, um, but you know, that, that kind of whole point of, you know, if you value something, give, give some value back because otherwise one day it might not be there anymore. Um, and it was kind of interesting, you know, kind of, you kind of use Patreon slightly differently to a lot of people, you know, you don't have, you have tiers, but not pay this and then get an extra podcast or access to a discord server or any of that kind of thing. Um, and yeah, you've kind of said, you know, nothing will be behind a paywall. So you don't kind of see, well, you know, this is the basic. And then for the extra content, if you want the extra content, it's more, it's more, this is this is everything. If you like it, pay what you think it's worth or what you can. Mm. I was very inspired a few years ago when Radiohead, uh, one of my favorite bands released, I think it was In Rainbows was yeah. the record, but they just released it and said, here it is, pay what you want. Um, and I thought that was amazing. And I remember paying 10 pounds for it at the time because I thought that's what I can afford and that's what I think it's worth. But I know people, I know some people that spent 30 pounds on it because they could afford to. And then there's some people who downloaded it for free because they couldn't afford it. And I just thought that was, uh, sensational. Uh, and you're right. We, we, when we first set up Patreon, we tried to think of what we could give people, um, you know, if they gave us more money and you know, there are, we, we, we are working on some things like we've got some amazing t-shirts being designed by Johnny, who's, uh, who's very into sort of fashion and design and, and they'll be very cool and a few other things along the line and we, and people who subscribe to us will get a, a nice fat discount on those things. We will eventually, um, figure out how to do a print magazine, although it's all costed up <laughs> and we're not, we're not in a position we would, we would bankrupt ourselves in one fell swoop if we, if we push the button, push go on that now. Yep. So it's, it's parked. And so, cause we're, we, we are about self-preservation as well. In terms of other payment models so i mean you've gone for patreon did you look at things like buy me a coffee and other things like where it's just more of a for one of a better phrase a tip jar you know a, i appreciate what you're doing here's some money with a, did you look at those kind of things i looked at lots of different uh, i think ko-fi was a, was another one that i i used a little bit personally but patreon for us as you said my politics are, are quite left-leaning and a lot of the way i run the business is founded in uh, in that because i I think everything, drinking a beer or making a magazine about beer, it's all a political act, right? So I believe that in the way we consume content now uh, and the way the whole point of the internet is for things to be open and accessible to all, that was the original idea of the internet. So I believe that I, I don't want to paywall content. I don't want to do exclusives. I don't want to give people who have the privilege of having more money to have exclusive content. I want people to be able to come and share in our joy of drinks. That's the whole, the whole point of Pellicle. So putting it behind the paywall would be counterintuitive to that. And so what we ask people is if you, if you think it's worth it and you can afford it, then support it. And if you support it, then it, then you grow our resource and you make what we do better. Uh, and it, like I say, it all stems from this sort of political belief of that's how content now should be, you know, I've, I've been reading a lot at the moment, I'm sure a lot of people have, about um, NFTs. And if you ignore like pictures of monkeys and all that nonsense that the, the media are doing, looking at it as a, as a proper token that gives you access to 
content and parts of the web, I look at that and I'm thinking that that is um, that that would create a problem. That would create a barrier for my readers because not all of our readers can afford to subscribe to a website or magazine. You know, people who work in hospitality who who don't get paid, who you know get paid minimum wage, and then you're asking them to read about their profession and ask them for more money. It doesn't sit well with me. And people, you know, people do support us, so we know people can afford it. And as we grow our audience, hopefully that support goes. And it's all about, you know, if we're going to write about a brewery doing amazing things, we don't want to say, you can only learn about this brewery if you can afford it. That doesn't sit well with me. So that's, so that's how we run Yalical. Yeah. And for the magazine, have you looked at possibly Kickstarter or something like that? Because I know it's someone else I'm going to hopefully have on a future podcast has done a freelance magazine. And, you know, that I think they got the initial four issues up and running through Kickstarter. Yes, if we, um, or I should say, when we do uh, a physical magazine, um, we so the Patreon is sustaining the website and podcast. Um, and we, need, we would need a separate revenue stream if we were to launch a print mag. Um, uh, and Kickstarter would probably be the platform. I think there's a few others like Indiegogo and stuff like that. But we would look for the one with that would be best for the people spending money on it. Um, but we would essentially look to to generate a pot of cash um, that that we would need all at once, um, and then hope it sells. <laughs> that's the that's the thing. Once the great thing about having a website is you don't need to worry about selling issues. But once we've made a print issue, say if we do a run of a thousand, that's you know in today's magazine market, that's that would be a lot of magazines to sell. That would be that'd be a good figure to hit. So. Um, uh, it, it would be making sure we can actually sell them. And a lot, one of the reasons we wouldn't do it now is I think part of being able to sell them is would be turning up at a beer festival and hiring a booth and having some beers on from our friends on our stand and, and physically selling magazines to people with our, you know, when I was doing my book tour, I was taking a box of books and my, and a square reader to every venue and, and just saying, if you could buy a book, I've got a little little box just tap it and you pay me with your card and that's it easy um and uh that you know that's what it you need boots on the ground to sell a physical product that's my philosophy so when uh, the world opens up a bit more um and beer festivals uh, start happening more regularly hopefully we'll turn up at a few and we'll, you know we'll have have some t-shirts to sell and eventually be there saying yeah we've got 100 magazines like we need to sell them all <laughs> to pay for these kegs of beer we've bought I think it's probably how I first found out about Pellicle was an article you wrote talking about, is it, so much safe, did you feel comfortable going to a beer festival? You know, I think you said it was like 2,000 people. I mean, how much has that changed the beer industry over the last, what's nearly two years now? And and also what you do and and how you write and what you write about. So I will say first, from a personal perspective, as, a, as someone who'd been a sole trader, as I said earlier, for... Uh, a few years, I was able to access the self-employment income support scheme. Um, and if it wasn't for that, I wouldn't be doing, my, I, would, I wouldn't be doing what I'd, I would have run out of money. I would have gone bankrupt. Um, so I'm, I'm very thankful that that came along because there was not, people, people were very cautious. There was not a lot of work going around. I thought um, Pellicle would go under. I, I simply thought people would cancel their Patreon subscriptions um and that would be the end of us but that'd be fair enough it's a pandemic but what actually happened was people enjoyed the escapism 
we provided in that in 2020, we didn't really write about the pandemic. We just had all these stories commissioned and we just went, let's just, we've commissioned these stories. Let's just publish them. Let's not worry about the pandemic. Um, but the article I wrote came out from a very conscious decision to say, hey, we really should start writing about what's happening in an objective way. And I had this, uh, you know, openness and transparency, uh, uh, how I work. And I went to this beer festival, uh, Leeds International Beer Festival. It's one of the best beer festivals uh, going. I absolutely love it. And, uh, you know, um, I didn't have a good time. Uh, I neglected to get a uh, vaccine certificate um, because I didn't realize I would need one. I was very naive. Um, and I was on the back foot with anxiety from the off and there were people, I hadn't been in a crowd that long for a while. And I had all this sort of pent up COVID related anxiety. I didn't really, I hadn't really acknowledged I was experiencing. And it was in that group that, it, um, it sort of came to the fore and it was very uncomfortable for me. Um, and I think, you know, a lot of, I wasn't going to publish that, but I was encouraged to by my colleagues at Pellicle who thought, well, you know what, a lot of people are going to relate to this. So coming back to your question about how it's affected the beer industry, I mean, um, along with leisure and tourism um, and industries like nightclubs, hospitality and by proximity, the supply chain that supports it and feeds into it, of which beer and brewing is is one of the big ones, um, it's been devastating um, that, you know, it's not just a case of lock, there was lockdowns and in the initial lockdowns, there was support provided for not everyone, but uh, people were able to get some support, but also people might have had a bit of money in the bank at that time. Now that that's gone. What's happening now, arguably where the government said everything's going to stay open, but we, you, you shouldn't go out. You can, but you shouldn't. But that means that absolves them from providing uh, support. Uh, and now things are tougher than ever. Confidence is at an all-time low. Um, and it, it's, uh, it's really is make or break uh, for a lot of, lot of businesses, pubs, bars, restaurants, and for breweries that feed into them. I mean, just over the last few weeks, you know, with them not giving any real update on what's happening, if you're owning a pub or a bar, how do you know what to order? If you ordered a big a load of casks and kegs and bottles and cans, and then a week later, Boris Johnson came on the television and said, "Oh, we're going into lockdown." All that stock would have to be poured away in it. You know, that's that's a huge loss. So people have no way of really knowing how much they should be producing, how much they should be purchasing. Um, the industry really is on a a knife edge at the moment. Um, what I also I do, but with that, I also do see a lot of people working hard, innovating, you know, a lot of breweries pivoted to, to cans, to, to mini casks or five litre casks of beer you can drink at home. Um, seeing breweries engage in Zoom tastings, having virtual pubs, you know, as people, some people are grafting to try and keep afloat because things will go back to uh, a, a normal, it, you know, it might not be exactly the same as it was before the pandemic, but, you know, we saw pubs uh, come back in the summer and they'll come back again. And, you know, a few of them might not be around, but there are people working hard to make sure they are going to be around because 
being able to buy great beer and being able to go to a great pub is is hugely important. That's something you know the pandemic really brought that into focus for me to be to be able to go to a a space that's not work and not not home. That's that's hugely important, um, both uh, from a mental health perspective and culturally in general. Uh, we we need those spaces as as a, as a society. Uh, so as well as the book and the website, you also now have a podcast. Was that something you kind of wanted to do from the start, or was it the kind of thing that you know once lockdown happened, you thought, ah, well, you know, like millions of others, I'll I'll start a podcast. I I've wanted to do a podcast for a while. Um, I I tried to start one earlier when I was blogging, uh, and I just didn't have time. Um, but and then. But my first real start in podcasting was when I was working for Good Beer Hunting. I became its um, second contributor because um, it used to just have one host, much like my podcast does now, but that now it has lots of hosts. Every week you have a different contribu- contributor um, producing an episode. And, um, so, and that was an interview-based uh, beer podcast. Uh, and then when I started Pel- Pellicle, um, I always I wanted to get a podcast done as soon as I had the time and and resources to start doing it. My background is actually in audio. Um, as I said earlier, I worked for a music tech uh, equipment distributor. My degree is in music technology. Uh, you know, I used to play in bands and stuff. So before I had a crack at beer, I did have a crack at music, uh, and that didn't work out. But I'm I'm actually much happier in beer. But the legacy of that is um, I've got a bunch of decent recording equipment um, and um, you know I'm a trained sound engineer so um, I, you know I, in terms of getting the right mics and getting the right sound sound I'm, I'm trained uh, in, in doing that which is and also in in editing audio as well so that's been hugely advantageous I I, I love working with audio um, I I, I want to do way more podcasts but the only thing is uh, you know I'm in terms of my production process uh, I go in quite deep and it takes me three or four times, three or four as much time as it does to write an article to produce a podcast. Did I say that right? Yeah, I, I, <laughs> I, I, I get what about, you mean. It takes me about four times longer to make one podcast than it does to make one article. Um, and, you know, I'm also in a in a profession that isn't particularly well paid. The podcast I do is still... Uh, you know, I'm not paying myself to do, uh, actually, we just got a new sponsor and I paid myself £300 to do six episodes, which is the first time I've I've earned money from the Pellicle podcast. And um, and that was, so that was nice, £50 an episode. Um, and, and hopefully if that grows, it means I will have more time to make more podcast episodes. But my bread and butter is still writing um, for, for Pellicle, for um, magazines like Ferment, and so I have to be mindful that I I can't spend too much time on, even if I want to, on projects that aren't earning me money because otherwise I'll have no money and won't be able to pay my rent. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, in terms of the podcast, do you see see a slightly different that you would accept more ads on that, and and kind of works on a slightly different model? I'm figuring it out. I think a few of our Patreon supporters have signed up to our Patreon because of the podcast, a small percentage, but a percentage nonetheless. Um, but I am really interested in working with sponsors that kind of fit in with our own ideals and ethics and, and, and get it really. I'm not too keen on 
dropping in uh, any old ad doesn't really have relevance. And, I, you know, I, I'm a bit of a control freak and I like that element of control. Um, so I pitched for a sponsor um, recently and was contacted by a lady called Kate Bailey, who runs a company called Hand and Heart, and they have just signed up to become um, a new sponsor, six episodes initially. Um, but fingers crossed that will go well and will hopefully bloom into a longer term relationship because um, our site sponsor, Hot Burns and Black, have now been sponsoring us. Um, well, they've paid for up to up to our third birthday, the 1st of May, and they've already said they will remain committed throughout 2022. So, you know, I would, I would rather than like put up any old ad, I'd rather build strong relationships with people who really get what we're trying to do. And, um, and, uh, it's, you know, I'm much more comfortable in that kind of situation. At the risk of spreading yourself even thinner than you do already. I mean, are you looking into kind of tie ups with hot burns and black in terms of kind of linking, you know, whether that's events or pellicle beer by post and those kind of things? Are there any kind of projects that are either you know either on the back burner or possibly would come to fruition? I'm definitely not going to start a retailer. <laughs> um, I'll leave I'll leave that to the people doing a wonderful job of it already. Uh, events are definitely on the cards. I mean that's that was actually in our business plan. We we know what they we know what we want them to look like. Um, we're hopefully going to do something for our third birthday, um, which will be uh, early May. Um, and, um, but you know, I, that's not even in the planning stages yet, but doing a tie up, doing an event in London with hot burns and black is something that we will do as soon as we're able, you know, we've got a space figured out. Um, we know what we want to do. Um, the thing is that those events are great for promotion, but for in-person events, uh, they're not big money spinners, but it would be, but they are great at, at, uh, getting engagement and awareness. Um, I'll, I'll literally just be stood at the front ringing a bell saying, please sign up to Patreon. <laughs> yeah. Um, probably not that literal, but, um, yeah, like even, um, like I used to host beer clubs and beer tastings, uh, once or twice a month, every month before the pandemic. And only at the end of 2021, when my book came out, was I, did I start doing in-person events again? Uh, you know, rooms of 20 or 30 people a box full of books and I just talk about beer we taste some beers it felt so good to be out there to even doing these little events so fingers crossed uh, we can do something bigger I did when I worked for good beer hunting I helped organize a a beer festival in London for about 500 people um and that was one of the most stressful things I've ever done uh but uh, I would absolutely do it again in a heartbeat again another possible area is newsletters is that something you've considered either with website content or part website part new we need to find time to to have a regular newsletter i think it would we wouldn't have any exclusive content but what i notice is it, sometimes we publish an article and it just flies i don't i don't understand it but the algorithm will pick it up and it'll just get shared far and wide and it'll do great numbers and that's really satisfying but sometimes you work really hard with a writer on a great article um, and then you commission some fabulous images for it. You put all this money into it and it just kind of fizzles and you're like, oh, why aren't you sharing it everywhere? Why aren't people, um, reading it? And of course you are slaves to the, to the algorithm in terms of what people see. Um, so, um, so 
within the podcast, you've got a mix of styles. So sometimes it's just you on the microphone. Other times there's interviews. Do you kind of like the, the kind of mix of the two? And is one more of a ball ache than the other? So as I said earlier, the podcast is kind of my own pet projects. And the whole aim of it is to make a podcast that I want to listen to, or at least the kind of podcast that I want to listen to. Um, I'm very inspired by a podcast called The Blind Boy Podcast. It's really popular. He riffs on the mic about these amazing ideas. He talks about art. He talks about mental health. He talks about Irish culture. Um, it, it's it's a superb podcast. And I wanted to create a podcast that kind of combined all the things I'm into. So the first, it took, I think with any podcast, you have to, it's a, it's a, it was a new media for me. And it took me a few episodes to figure it out that I, what I wanted to do with the podcast. So you, around episode 17 to 18, you'll hear the shift from this kind of scripted approach I was taking where I was cutting stuff together very clean to episode 18 where I'm like, you know what? I don't like the way that sounds. I'm just going to turn the mic on and try and riff and then, ed then edit it into something usable. And that's actually, I did one of those earlier today. And today I just couldn't get the sentences in order. Sometimes it flows. Sometimes you'll sit and record for an hour and go, wow, that was great. Today, there was a lot of swearing, a lot of frustration. But thankfully, thanks to the magic of the edit, no one will have to deal with uh, me not able to put a sentence about a pint of beer in order. <laughs> um, so uh, occasionally I'll sit down and interview someone. Um, and I think that's nice for me to break it up because it does those monologue episodes, as I call them, where it's literally just me riffing on an idea they they're quite a lot of work uh i don't just sit on it i don't really just sit down and turn the mic on i spend a lot of time thinking about it planning it like i have to make sure if i'm going to say this i need to back it up with some evidence i need uh, to make sure i don't get anything wrong when i'm in the edit if i've said something and i'm like is that really i've said that is that true i'm fact checking everything because i don't want to put something you know once you've put a podcast up it's an absolute nightmare as you'll know to like okay, this bit was wrong, so I've got to cut it out and upload it again. Um, and so those episodes do take several hours and sometimes it's nice to, to go, like my next episode, the one after the one I recorded today is an interview where I'll just cut this interview together, do an intro, an outro, thank you very much. And that is about half the time. So it it's nice, but it, I think it also keeps it fresh for the listener. I want, um, I don't, people... I wouldn't want to listen to just me talking for an hour every week. So it's just to keep some new voices coming in. And this, the podcast, the Pellicle podcast as it is, I see it as incredibly malleable. I'm just going to let it go where it wants to go. Uh, I don't know where that is. And I've got the next five episodes planned. I've got some interviews recorded. I know what I'm going to say. Then after that, I'm just going to go, what do I, what kind of episode do I feel like doing? Like it, it's, it's, um, because it's not a money spinner for me or, or Pellicle. It's, it's kind of the hobby element of what I'm doing. I'm, I've got this wonderful freedom uh, to, to take it where, it where it wants to go. Hopefully, if it is successful, then it might become more rigid once it builds an audience. And I, you know, once you have an audience, I feel you have a responsibility to provide them consistently with, with something enjoyable and something they expect. Uh, but it's not quite in that place yet. So I'm Still, um, still developing it. It's it's one of my favourite projects to work on at the moment. That's for sure. And in terms of kind of what's worked, what hasn't worked, in terms of numbers, are there any that particularly stand out that have kind of gained some traction? 
Yeah. Um, the, the most popular podcast I did is an interview with Cloudwater's Paul Jones. Um, Paul is a, a friend of mine, but he's also quite an outspoken person online. And I think that gave people a chance to hear him in a more uh, long form discussion and really elaborate on some of the ideas. He, he tweets a lot um, and, you know, some people agree with him and some people really don't agree with him. Uh, he's quite a polarizing person. I think that's a good thing because he, he has values and he, he sticks by them. Um, another really popular episode is one where I talk about cider. It's one of my, my monologue episodes. And I talk about how I think cider's got itself in a bit of an image problem situation. And it, it's got a lot of uh, personal stuff to work through that it hasn't done yet. And, uh, and I stick by that. And I just basically express that for a while. There are some people insider who go, yep, yeah, uh, it's nice. It's refreshing to hear someone say that out loud. And there are some people insider who won't speak to me anymore. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's, okay. uh, and I think that proves my point if I'm being honest. Um, but that, that there's not a lot of, um, podcasts on cider. So f I think the cider audience really jumped on that because it was a big topic I was discussing, but also, um, there's, there's, I mean, if anyone's thinking about starting a podcast, consider starting a cider podcast because there's, there's a lot of beer podcasts, but not a lot of cider podcasts and what's happening in cider, um, uh, is very exciting. But just beware that these people out there will, who will say, no, you're, you're wrong about cider. <laughs> well, I mean, whatever your opinion is about anything, there'll be someone telling you you're wrong. Absolutely. Sure. Absolutely. No. Fantastic. Um, it's going back to the, the podcast and the sponsors. So do you have a media pack or anything else, some kind of thing to kind of show perspective sponsors as to, you know, this is what the podcast is. These are what the numbers are. With, I mean, Hotburns and Black were our friends, so we, we basically just, that was a, an, a, an in-face, informal meeting over a beer. But with the latest sponsor, Hand in Heart, we did send, like, a, 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 I guess, a media pack with our, our data and why we think it was worthwhile to them. But also, on, you know, we're not, it, the way advertising works now, you know, if we put an ad on our website, people aren't going mad and clicking ads um, uh you know, that's not really how pay for advertising works. It's about fostering a, a relationship and building trust. And um, so after the initial emails with Kate from Hand and Heart, um, we had a, a really good chat over Zoom about our aims. And, and I, you know, I think finding sponsors that are on the same wavelength and really get what you're trying to do is so important. Um, so that was that was really great that um, that they approached us and about advertising and, and I'm Really stoked to have them on board. The only other thing I wanted to briefly touch on is your photography. So again, it's another, it's another string to your many string bow. Is is that something that you've you've always been interested in, or is is that again kind of comes with the writing? It kind of came along the same time. So when I was blogging about beer, um, I so good beer hunting, which I mentioned earlier, was founded by a guy called Michael Kaiser, who himself is an amazing writer and photographer, and. When he started that, it was just his blog as well. And, but he would take these incredible photos and I would look at them going, wow, the visual aspect and the, that he's put as much effort into the images as he has the writing and the combination of the two. That's wonderful. I, I, I want to, I was like, I want to see, that's what I want to see on the internet. So that's what I want to make. Um, so I, I'd always been sort of casually interested in photography, but I, bought a, a Sony a6000 was the first uh, proper camera I got 
Um, so it's kind of mid price, but then a few months later I could afford a new lens. So I got a 50 millimeter little, well, it was technically a 35 millimeter prime, but gave me 50 with the, with the cropped sensor. But, um, and then I kind of just always had this little camera on me to take photos and it went from there and eventually, you know, I wanted to win commissions and I thought if I'm able to provide an editor with great images as well as great writing or at least good writing, then, um, I'd more likely win a commission and it doesn't always work that way, but it is, it is a handy skill to have, but it developed, uh, kind of on its own. I really loved i love photography and eventually um not long after i'd gone freelance uh, and i was like i need to figure out another revenue stream because writing is is uh making me some money but i i need to figure out how to make a little bit more a brewery uh reached out to me and said we love your uh photos on the um on the on your articles how would we get that for us and i'm like well i could just come and do them for you like what would you charge and so I did my first couple of photography gigs and then I'm like, well, this is good. And like, no one really specialized in brewery photography. Um, and it's quite a complicated environment. They're poorly lit. Um, there's lots of dangerous hot liquids and chemicals and pressurized gases. And I, but I spend hours in breweries. I've, I've visited hundreds and hundreds of them. So I know these spaces intimately. So I sort of position myself as a specialist beer and brewery photographer. And, you know, like I said earlier, there's 2000 breweries in the UK. And now I have uh, some really great regular clients that I do photography for. Um, one near me is Red Willow in Macclesfield, uh, who I was at recently uh, doing some photography for their Buxton bar. Yeah. So I, that supplements my income. I would say writing uh, is about, as is my core income, about 70% of my income. Um, before the pandemic, um, photography was doing really well for me. Uh, but it's, it, it, that was the thing that was most decimated by the pandemic. You know, I couldn't get to breweries to do photography. So I just lost that income entirely. That's gradually been coming back. Um, I also moved to another city, so I'm kind of reestablishing myself, uh, here in Manchester where I've been for over a year now, but I've already done some work for Red Willow. Like I said, uh, recently did some for Beatniks Republic, which is a great little brewery here in Manchester. So, um, as uh, hopefully the situation calms down again, I will, uh, you know, I've got my portfolio and I'll push myself and see if anyone needs some photography. In terms of my own work, it's been really useful. When I did my book, Modern British Beer, um, they said, would you like to do the photography as well? Um, and I said, I'd love to. And it gave me, not as well as being able to do the photos, it gave me editorial control of what the book would end up looking like. Um, and that's, that's, you know, as I said, they were really hands off in the production of this book, um, and and the, letting me do the photography and and direct that uh, was was part of that. So it really does feel like a very me body of work. Like I said earlier, you know, you've kind of got multiple fingers in pies. You know, if there was another you cloned was available to start tomorrow, what would they work on? Uh, I if if I could clone me, I would just go on holiday. <laughs> um, do you know what if? If I had more, if I had more time, I would try and write about other things I'm passionate about. I'm very wary of, like, I, with beer, I turned a hobby into a job and that you shouldn't, you should keep things as hobbies. I think that's important, but I love writing and I would love to write about other stuff. Uh, I'm really into, uh, like video games. 
um, running, you know, there's, I would, I would, if I had more time, I would love to write outside of the subjects that I'm known for. Um, that, that would be something I'd be, I'd be really into. Um, and also the other thing I would do is, is work on a pellicle print mag. Um, the, the other, re- it's not just the financials that are holding us back. The other reason is the amount of time, uh, required for that would involve like pausing, uh, safe freelance, uh, gigs. Um, and I, it's too much of a risk to do that because it's not, not, a, not a big money spinner writing about beer. Um, so I guess that's what I do. If I, if I could have another me, I'd be like, right, you're making the magazine. Um, but you, you you'll have no money. <laughs> Big thanks to Matt for coming along. You'll find a lot more about Pellicle and other activities that Matt's involved in on our show notes.